Our passage this morning is Acts 15, verses 1 to 35. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe, to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the, of the disciples a yoke upon which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Also, the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble these who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preached him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. 
the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from such things, you will do well, farewell. So when they were sent away, they, were, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your loving kindness to us and your grace that we are not under the law, that we do not have to try to earn a way to heaven, but by faith we can come to you and that you save us. And for that, we thank you and we praise you. Father, we pray now for Tom that you would speak through him and that our ears would be open and that we would listen and obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. My wife always laughs at me when I say, oh, this is going to be a really important passage because I say that every week. But uh, this one is, this is a, a passage that, that lays out for us how people are saved and how people are not saved. So it's, it is right, it goes right to the core of the gospel message. This is a foundational passage in the New Testament. Uh, back in chapter 10, God gave Peter uh, a vision, and he repeated the vision three times, and then immediately after the vision, he sent Peter to meet with a Roman military official named Cornelius and a house full of his Gentile friends. Um, through that meeting, Peter got to see, he got to witness God saving Gentiles. He saw these, this gathering of Gentiles come to, they heard the gospel message from him and they believed. And when they trusted in Jesus, God poured out his Holy Spirit on them, just as God had done with the Jews in, in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And as in that chapter, that, that indwelling of the Spirit was manifested in, in very observable form through them speaking in tongues. So God not only filled them with the Spirit, he, he showed, uh, demonstrated that he had done so. 
through that series of events, Peter, uh, Peter became quite convinced that God was including Gentiles in the church, his, God's spiritual household, and that the way that he was including Gentiles was the same way that he had, had drawn in Jews, and that was through faith in Jesus Christ, by God's grace through faith. And so Peter went back to Jerusalem, and he shared with his, his friends what had happened there uh, in that meeting with Cornelius in Caesarea. And when he did, uh, some of the Jews at that church in Jerusalem protested vigorously that he had not only met with Gentiles, but eaten with Gentiles. That was just terrible. Peter stood his ground and he shared with those Jews the whole story of what had happened in the vision and the whole sequence of events with that group of Gentiles. And most of those Jews in Jerusalem accepted what Peter was presenting, but not all of them. We might think that that should have settled the matter with the Jews in the church at Jerusalem, but it had not. There were still many uh, who were not on board with this this uh, notion of Gentiles being part of the people of God uh, without being circumcised and without keeping the law. Chapter 15 picks up our narrative as uh, Paul and Barnabas have finished their, uh, their first missionary journey, and that, those arrows that you see on the map show the, the path of that journey through the island of Cyprus and through the uh, southern part of Asia Minor where they went to many cities that were mostly Gentile cities, and they saw many people, both Jews and Gentiles, come to faith in Jesus Christ. Then they returned to Antioch of Syria, which was their home base, and, uh, and that concluded their first round, their first missionary journey. The first verse of this chapter, chapter 15 of Acts, launches into a, a, a deadly serious controversy that arose in that church in Antioch of Syria. And it was a controversy that could not be ignored or glossed over because what was at stake was the very essence of how sinners become accepted in the sight of our perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. Luke uh, wastes no time getting right to the problem at hand. In verse 1, he says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And that's very straightforward. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Verse 2 tells us that great dissension and debate then ensued between Paul and Barnabas and those men from Judea who were making this claim. And it was a very heated exchange. The word that's translated dissension in, uh, in verse 2 is the same word that's used in Luke's gospel in chapter 23, verse 19, when it says that, that uh, Barabbas, the zealot who, was, who replaced Jesus, who was released in place of Jesus by Pilate, had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection. It's the same word. Uh, and for murder. So that word can be used of a riot. It can be used of a, a very serious uh, uh, animosity between groups of people. Luke tells us that these men were from Judea. Now, Judea was the region of Palestine in which the city of Jerusalem resided. There is 
No doubt that these men who came to Antioch represented themselves as bearing the authority of the leaders of that church in Jerusalem, of men like James and Peter. But as we'll see shortly, they definitely were not speaking for those church leaders. Now, I believe these are the same Judaizers. There may have been a series of events here, and the timeline is not exact, but I believe these are the same Judaizers that Paul talks about in Galatians 2. A Judaizer is someone who teaches that in order for a person to be a Christian, he has to be a Jew. He has to become a Jew in all matters of practice. Um, in Galatians 2, Paul calls such men false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage, in order to bring us into bondage. Remember that phrase. As Paul and Barnabas traveled southward to meet with the elders in Jerusalem to try to resolve this problem, this question, they passed through they passed through uh, Phoenicia, which is coastal region just southwest of Syria, and then they passed through Samaria. And as they did, they again came across churches that had already been planted, had already been started, that included mostly Gentiles. And they described it says they described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles that had happened during their missionary journey. And so the people, those Gentiles in those cities in Phoenicia and Samaria, they thought this was great. They were, they were rejoicing. Uh, finally, when, the, when Paul and Barnabas arrived at their destination in Jerusalem, they, they, were, they came to connect with the elders and the apostles of that very first local church that was created by the Holy Spirit. But when they got there, before they, before they met with the elders, they encountered believers from among the Pharisees, which is the same sect of Judaism to which Paul had belonged. And these Pharisees stood up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentile believers and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And that's verse 5. These Pharisees in Jerusalem didn't stop at insisting that the Gentiles be circumcised. They said that in order for the Gentiles to be part of the true church, they had to observe the whole law of Moses. That meant the dietary restrictions, the sacrifices, the festivals, and hundreds of other commands and ordinances in the law of Moses. Now, while their insistence on law-keeping might lead us to conclude that they were not, in fact, believers in Jesus Christ, the text says that they were. And we don't have the luxury of just dismissing that or ignoring it. And I believe there's an important warning in that that we must not miss, and that is that even redeemed saints are capable of embracing and even advocating seriously false teaching and that really shouldn't be such a great surprise. Um, in Matthew 16, right after Peter's great confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, the very next thing that's recorded, and by the way, Jesus said, that came to you from my Father. That doesn't come from men. Right after that event, the next event is Peter strenuously arguing with Jesus that Jesus could not die 
He could not be, Jesus had said that he was going to suffer and die. And Peter said, no, that can't happen. That can't happen. And so uh, how did Jesus respond to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Now, that didn't mean that Peter had stopped believing in Jesus. It meant that he was grievously wrong about something exceedingly important, and he had to be, he had to be sorted out. Every one of us is capable of embracing and declaring rank heresy if we stop listening to God and start listening to men, including ourselves. The error that was being perpetrated by these Judaizers was as serious as a heart attack, and actually more serious because a heart attack doesn't threaten anybody's eternal destiny, but messing with the gospel does. Verse 6 tells us that when Paul and Barnabas arrived in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. They didn't have any option to ignore it because uh, it was very clear to them that what was at stake was the gospel itself. The rest of our passage now, verses 6 through 35, lays out how that debate played out in, in Jerusalem and how this very important matter was resolved by the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, Luke tells us that much debate about this issue took place that day. Uh, but he focuses on the case that was made by only four men, Peter, Barnabas, Paul, and James. Each of those four men made a compelling case for the exact same verdict, the same conclusion to this problem. The way that people are eternally saved, whether Jew or Gentile, is not by grace plus law-keeping of any kind, but by grace only, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The first case, the first testimony that, that Luke sets before us was the, the case presented by Peter. Peter begins by reminding these assembled brethren that in the earliest days of the existence of Christ's church, God made a choice that by Peter's mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now that goes back, he's pointing back to what we saw in chapter 10 and that whole episode involving Cornelius and, and his Gentile friends. The way that God had convinced Peter that he was including Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ was through the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, whom Peter had seen God give to those first believing Gentiles, just as he had seen the same Holy Spirit given to the believing Jews on the day of Pentecost. That's a very important point here. And if you go back and look at Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, this whole matter of the pouring forth of the Spirit of God onto those who come to faith in Jesus, that's the very centerpiece of that sermon. Um, now, while Peter, uh, it, back there in chapter 10, in, when, it, when that episode with Cornelius occurred, there were some things that, regarding this whole, the centrality of the Holy Spirit that I want to read to you. This is Acts 10, verses 44 to 48. It says, while Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message, the message of the gospel. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed 
because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, just as we Jews did. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Here in Acts chapter 15, Peter says, God who knows the heart, this is verse 8, God who knows the heart bore witness to those Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts through faith. Cleansing their hearts through faith. The gift of the Spirit had been God's undeniable confirmation to all in that chapter that Gentiles were now included in the New Covenant community. The presence of the Holy Spirit was proof of hearts that had been cleansed through faith. The connection between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and hearts that are clean before God was not new to the New Testament. In Ezekiel, long before God declared this to Israel, uh, long before these events that we're looking at, God declared this to Israel and Judah. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 28. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Now that very same heart cleansing and indwelling by the Holy Spirit had been manifested in Gentiles exactly the same way it had been manifested in Jews. Now, with that as the basis of Peter's case for grace only, he now confronts those who are corrupting the simplicity and purity of the gospel by adding circumcision and law-keeping to the good news of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. In verse 10, Peter says, now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? This is Acts 15.10. Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You remember that part about putting people under bondage? He's talking about the same thing. He's talking about, he's talking about a burden that they are imposing on Brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, that does not belong. And that even Jews had not been able to bear. The law, the law was not given, the law of Moses was not given so that, that men would know how to be made acceptable to God. It was given so that men would know that they are not acceptable to God. It was the perfect standard of God's righteousness and God's holiness manifested in rules and laws that told men how to play that character of God out in their relationships with each other. And men utterly failed to keep that law. Everybody except one, and that's Jesus. 
Peter sounds uh, very much here in Acts 15.10 like Paul does in Galatians 5. In, uh, at the beginning of that chapter, Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. See, Paul's saying that if you make any work a condition for salvation, then you have to keep every bit of the law because God doesn't grade on the curve. Righteousness in the eyes of God is all or nothing. And the righteousness that God requires of his image bearers is his righteousness. All of that matches up very well with what James says in James 2 verse 10 when he says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become, has become guilty of all. It's all or nothing. Peter wraps up his case for grace only in verse 11. He says, but we believe, and this, this is great, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, it can't get any clearer than this. Every human being who is saved is saved the same way through the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's not grace plus, it's grace only. After Peter finishes making his uh, case for grace only, then uh, the next witnesses who present the same case are Barnabas and Paul. And they get only one verse here, verse 12. The question, again, the question at hand is not whether Gentiles had come to believe in Jesus. The question is whether or not God would actually include in Christ's church uncircumcised Gentiles who don't observe the law of Moses. Uh, <laughs> Barnabas and Paul focused their testimony not on the faith that they had witnessed in the Gentiles, but on the signs and wonders that God had performed among those believing Gentiles to demonstrate that they had, in fact, been saved and included in the spiritual household of God. Again, the question wasn't whether they believed. The question was whether they were included. And it was the signs and wonders. It was the manifestation of, of the, the Spirit through speaking in tongues was the primary sign that God gave to say, these, these Gentiles are in the household of God. In verses 13 to 21, we have the final witness for grace only in this, uh, in this debate. And that, and that witness is the witness of James, the brother of Jesus, who had become an elder and clearly the spokesman for the elders in the church at Jerusalem. That in itself is a sweet reminder uh, of the transforming grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because along with the other half-brothers of Jesus who were born to Joseph and Mary, James had not been on board with this whole thing about his, his half-brother being the Messiah that was promised by the prophets. The brothers of Jesus had been, they had been in the way of Christ's ministry. But now, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, James had become one of the most influential leaders in the first generation of Christ's church. 
That's a, a beautiful demonstration of God's transforming grace. James begins his case by respectfully acknowledging and agreeing with what Peter had said. The Simeon that he mentions in verse 14 is Peter. Simeon is a formalized Hebrew variant of the Greek name Simon, Simon Peter. Once Paul and Barnabas finished their testimony, James says, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles the people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Now, here's the heart of James's case. With this, the words of the prophets agree. With what? With the fact that God is saving Gentiles. He's, he, he quotes... James cites the prophetic book of Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and the point of the citation is that God prophesied hundreds of years earlier that he would make Gentiles, he would make people from the rest of mankind part of the covenant people of God. See, this purpose of God was not new information in the New Testament. From of old, Amos says, God's long-promised intention revealed through his faithful prophets was to take from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And those Old Testament prophecies about the inclusion of the Gentiles did not say that God would accomplish this by turning Gentiles into Jews. In verses 19 to 21, James declares his recommendation regarding the instruction that should now be given to Gentile believers as the outcome of this, this whole discussion to put this thing to bed. He says, verse 19, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning from God, uh, turning to God from among, among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Four things. We'll see those again in a minute. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now don't miss there in verse 21, don't miss the rationale for James's proposed directive to the Gentile saints. That rationale is love, not law. He says, for Moses has in every city those who preach him in the synagogues every Sabbath. See, throughout the Gentile cities in the Roman Empire, every significant city had a synagogue and a community of Jews. And for those Jews to sit at a table and eat meat with the blood still in it, or to eat meat that was known to have been offered up to idols, would have created a grievous crisis of conscience for those Jews. In 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, Paul makes it very clear that a child of God must never cause a brother or sister in Christ to violate his or her conscience before God in such a way. We must all limit our liberty in Christ with love for our fellow saints. And that's the spirit of what James is saying here when it comes to the whole issue of food. Now, we're going to look a little closer at this as we get to this final directive, the letter that is given to, that is sent to Gentile believers. 
starting in the church in Antioch. James's proposal ended up being embraced by all of the leaders of both local churches, Antioch and Jerusalem, who had gathered there in Jerusalem to have this debate. And it was also approved by the saints there in the Jerusalem church. Verse 22 says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch, to go back up north to Antioch of Syria, with Paul and Barnabas. And so Judas and Silas, leading men among the brethren there in Jerusalem, were sent together with Paul and Barnabas to carry this letter so that there would be a united front. Everybody would know that this was agreed upon by the leaders in Jerusalem. Verse 24 makes it crystal clear that the Jews who had, had demanded that Gentile believers be circumcised and observe the law of Moses had not been authorized by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. James refers to those men as, quote, some of our number to whom we gave no instruction. They didn't represent us. Verses 25 to 27 make, make it just as clear that all of the leaders of the churches in Jerusalem and Antioch are completely united on the instructions that they are now presenting to Gentile believers. Verse 25 says, It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. There's deep affection in this statement. And then he says, Barnabas and Paul are men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. This is great. <laughs> You're sending this, this group of four men, two from Jerusalem, two from Antioch, to go back to Antioch with the exact same story, the exact same outcome from this debate. This is a, a wonderful and a very visible manifestation of the love and the unity that God had created between Jewish and Gentile saints from two very different communities of Christians. The actual directive to the Gentile believers is contained in just one verse, verse 29. It's very straightforward. I'm going to read verse 28 and 29 so you can get, how, get the flow here. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, you Gentile believers, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality. That's what the word means in the general sense. And then he says, if you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Now notice that he, the, it does not say, if you keep yourselves free from such things, then you can say you're really saved. It's not what it says. It says, if you keep yourselves free from such things, you do well. See, this is not about how anyone gets saved. This directive is not about how people get saved. It's about, how it's about how saved Gentiles should behave. And we must not miss that in verse 28, the leaders of the churches attribute this directive not merely to this group of apostles and elders, but to the Holy Spirit. See, the way the Holy Spirit made his will on this matter known 
to the churches was not by speaking from heaven, but by directing a discussion engaged in by a group of human beings, the elders and apostles, the leaders in the church of, from the church of Antioch and Jerusalem, leaders that God himself had raised up to act as under-shepherds in those churches who have only one chief shepherd, and that's Jesus. This is how God leads his church. And we must not miss this. Uh, Bill McRae and Bob Deffenbaugh and Alex Strauch and other men are part of a group that I call Biblical Eldership. And the, the real focus of that group is to help teach churches in many places that this is God's design for leading his church. God raises up men, faithful men, tested men, and through the gifting of multiple men working together, he leads his church. It's not a CEO model. It's not terribly efficient when compared with how many corporations are, 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 are operated. But, beloved, it is exceedingly effective when we have only one chief shepherd. Now, here again are the four prohibitions in this directive. They exactly match what James had proposed. Gentile believers should abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And that's it. There are really only three essential prohibitions here because two and three are really about the same thing. The reason that Jews could not eat some, an animal who had been strangled is because the blood was still in the body. Leviticus 17.11, it's an amazing verse, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. I could spend a lot of time on that, but we're not going to do that today. But that was God's explanation for his prohibition to Israel against eating blood with the animal. And that reason has not changed now that we are no longer under the law of Moses. The life of all flesh is still identified with its blood. Nothing is more central to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross than that connection. We celebrate and symbolize that connection every single Sunday. When Jesus' blood was poured out for the sake of sinners like you and me, his life was given in our place. The blood is the life. And as a brief aside, I want to mention here something um, that has given a lot of Christians needless heartburn. Rare meat does not violate this prohibition. Every slaughterhouse and butcher in the United States and really the whole civilized world follows a, a process that evacuates all but minute residual amounts of blood from meat. Now, I, I looked at literally dozens of articles about this, and they all said the exact same thing. I'm just going to cite one of them. Even the rarest and reddest of steaks is actually bloodless. Instead, what you're looking at is a combination of water that makes up about 75% of meat and a protein found in muscle tissue called myoglobin. Myoglobin looks like blood on your plate like, because like hemoglobin, the iron in myoglobin turns red when it is exposed to oxygen. That's why muscle tissue in mammals is red. 
even when there's no blood in the animal. So don't freak out if the brother who invites you over for steaks likes to eat his rare. Now, the prohibition against sexual immorality, of course, goes way beyond merely protecting the conscience of Jewish believers. God's command for uncompromised sexual purity in his church is a constant, constant theme throughout the New Testament. Uh, Sex was created by God for one context, the marriage of a man and a woman for life. Outside that context, sex is forbidden. It's really quite simple if we're listening to God instead of to men. And we're all commanded to protect that, that purity. All right, let's, uh, got to wrap up here. Let's get to the, to the end point, the outcome of this whole debate. <laughs> By God's gracious doing, the outcome is very, very good. Paul and Barnabas, together with Judas and Silas, go all the way back to Antioch of Syria, and they present this letter that we just saw. And verse 31 says, and when, when the congregation, when they had read it to the congregation, they all rejoiced because of its encouragement. Verse 33 says that after Judas and Silas had spent some time there, they were sent away from those brethren in peace to return to those who had sent them out in Jerusalem. Now contrast that with how this passage began. The end of the passage is very, very different than the beginning. In the beginning, there's great dissension and debate. Dissension at a very intense level. Enmity. And now, unity. Guys, God had used this conflict to nurture unity. Please make sure you hear those words. God had used this conflict to nurture unity unity. Through a controversy that had caused lots of heated debate and animosity between believing Jews and Gentiles, God had created new relationships and he had strengthened old relationships between believers in Antioch and Jerusalem, and that would not have happened without the conflict. As I see it, there are four essential takeaways that we must not miss in this vitally important passage. Four, four essential takeaways. First, and very much most importantly, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not grace plus, it's grace only. Friends, this is, this is indispensable to our faith and to our message. This sets Christianity apart from every religion devised by human beings. Our salvation is 100% the work of God. It is 100% a gift that we absolutely do not deserve. We deserve the exact opposite. We all deserve eternal condemnation. And in Christ alone, we have eternal life and forgiveness from sins. What What are you resting on? What are you trusting in as the basis of your eternal destiny? As the, base, as the basis of your righteous standing in the eyes of a perfectly righteous God? 
If it's anything other than the finished payment for your sin that was accomplished by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross in your place, it won't cut it. (laughs) If you're trusting in any righteousness other than his righteousness to qualify you to stand and dwell in the presence of God, you're toast. doesn't work. And I need to add, it's not the quantity or quality of your faith through which you are saved. It's the object of your faith through, which you, through whom you are saved. It's the one in whom you trust who saves you. It's not your faith. His blood covering your sin and his righteousness credited to your account, that gift is the only qualification you will ever have to be accepted by God, and it is the only qualification you will ever need. That's the first takeaway. The second takeaway is that this is how important decisions are made in Christ's church. I already kind of belabored this, so I'm not going to talk about it much, but I want to make it clear. This is not congregational rule. It's not a democracy. It is proven men chosen by God, discussing, praying, sometimes arguing, waiting on God, and then rendering a decision that all in the church are then to embrace as coming from the Holy Spirit. We could talk about that for a long time, but I'm going to stop there. The third takeaway is God uses conflict in his church to clarify correct teaching and to smoke out false teaching and false teachers. God uses conflict to sort out who's speaking truth and who's speaking falsehood. And fourth, as we've mentioned, God uses conflict in his church to nurture unity. See, conflict between Christians does not derail God's agenda. That would make us more powerful than God, and that's never going to happen. We have a really good shepherd. I, I think there are a lot of believers these days that that are so, they are just, exasperated with the problems that they see in the church, and they forget that we have a really good shepherd. And ever since the church was in its infancy, God has used messy Christians to change the world, to to move his agenda forward and to advance his kingdom on earth. People just as messy as you and me. That doesn't excuse our messiness. It doesn't excuse our sin, but it does it does manifest the fact that God is way greater than we are. This is not about just sorting out doctrine and practice. What we've seen here in this event is a marvelous display and declaration of unity. Again, this does not in any way absolve us if we create or encourage needless conflict or if we deal with conflict in a manner that divides believers rather than reconciles God's people with God. But it absolutely does mean that God uses conflict to accomplish good things in his church. So you and I don't have to live in fear of a little headbutting, as long as it's prayerfully and humbly submitted to God. Those are the four takeaways as I see them. There may be more, but I'm going to I'm over time, so we're going to stop there. Loving Father, thank you for uh, for this marvelous passage. This is this was such a bellwether in the history of your church, the the way you orchestrated this whole thing from beginning to end, 
the way you set the stage for it, and then to see it play out with such a marvelous outcome, unity and love between Jews and Gentiles uh, that, would, that would manifest what you created, a unity that you created miraculously that abides even now. We see it in this church. Uh, what a beautiful gift you have given to us, Father. Uh, and and, and what, a, what a marvelous reminder that, that you use even conflict to move that unity forward and to advance your gospel. We give you all the praise and all the credit and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.